Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, and I promise this will be a much less weird episode this week than last. I am not joined by deranged author Robert Jackson Bennett or his homicidal waiter Giuseppe, but I am joined by fantasy author uh, V.E. Schwab and her editor in crime, Miriam Weinberg. V.E. or Victoria is the author of A Darker Shade of Magic and its soon-to-be-released sequel, A Gathering of Shadows. Her other books include Vicious, and as Victoria Schwab, not V.E., she has a series of YA and middle grade works, which are too numerous for me to name right here. Hi, Victoria. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you. And our other guest is Miriam, who is an editor at Tor, and she is fantastic and full of energy uh, and has already laughed at me like 15 times when we tried to record this intro. So welcome, I'm Miriam. really glad I you told me about that mute button <laughs> just now, because, yeah... Unfortunately, we can only mute ourselves. I just thought you were going to mute me so you guys could talk about anime without being interrupted. No, no, we'll be good. You, you just with the power of our voices. Yeah. Which, I mean, I should probably explain that Miriam is my editor. She's not oh. just a random editor. She is, I mean, I'm biased, but I believe the coolest editor. Oh. But she's also my editor. Oh. Also, I would like to point out that I'm pretty sure... We actually horrified Robert when we took a taxi with him from the confusion. <laughs> so, like, just just let that sink in. Just well, I just found out. I found out that Robert was on the same flight as me as I was disembarking, and then he was like, "Let's share a cab." And I was like, "Oh, that's great! I'm going to meet up with my editor Miriam. We can all share a cab." And then what happens when Miriam and I have been <laughs> apart for long periods of time and we're put into close proximity in person is we begin talking like squirrels, and then it's like the speed is sped up. Like it just gets <laughs> faster and faster and faster. And I'm pretty sure by the time Robert got out of that cab, he had like the stricken look of someone who had been through like an international conflict <laughs> like he just kind of walked away very very carefully <laughs> that's i was gonna say like had accidentally walked through a car wash but like international conflict <laughs> we can match that up to the next yeah. level yeah i am the i'm a writer i do words <laughs> what's great about that is that's normally how people react to robert <laughs> so this is like a really great i mean we, uh, we took it to like the next level obviously in order to like one up robert on the crazy like yep. i think we spooked him i think we did a pretty I mean, good. we were like totally normal we didn't even talk about the anime that we were just talking about before that intro no we we literally just spoke in our normal volume and, <laughs> and speed <laughs> and apparently that was enough to <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad we're all recovered from confusion. We are. Yes, we are. Oh, God, yes. And so we are here ostensibly to talk about uh, Victoria's book. Mm -hmm. Ostensibly. Uh, ostensibly. Ostensibly. Really, this is just, it's, we're going to see how long we can go on topic before, before either Miriam or I segues into something completely random. I mean, I do like talking about your books. So, so let's just, let's go for it. Let's go for it. So we'll just do it the surface news because we had some other news that, that hit a couple of days ago, or at least news is actually announced. Yes. Which is that you sold the TV rights to A Darker Shade of Magic. I did. I did. After sitting on that news for like almost seven so months, long. I think. Yeah. Long time. The whole seven months I was working on the actual pilot script. Which is why I said to you that you had been lying to your fans for six Absolutely. months. Absolutely. And maybe we, shouldn't, Absolutely. maybe we shouldn't. But you know what? Authors are just continuously lying to their fans. Like. True. All, like 90% of my job is lying to fans <laughs> or at least like hold it, keeping my mouth shut, which is really hard. I am like pretty wretched at secret keeping. And every single time like Miriam sends me a cover comp or anything, I just want to like turn and like post it to Twitter or like tell everybody because waiting on shit is hard and it's not very much fun. It's way more fun like getting to squee with the whole world. So I mean, I'm I'm obviously just more relieved and happy that that news is now public since I have been like working my ass off for six months on a TV pilot. <laughs> I feel like one of the most important things as somebody in this industry in general is to have a few people that you know you can share shit with, yes. <laughs> and you can trust that it's just going to stay with them. So you ha you can do that. You know? So important, definitely. Which is why, as soon as I get any news, I pretty much just like boot up an email to Miriam and I just fill <laughs> it with gifts. <laughs> it's just mostly like screaming anime character pictures <laughs> it's awesome to have that relationship with your editor because that's not super common no not at all i have i have four editors or i've had and and miriam and i have been lucky enough to work together for i guess three and a half years now four Wait, years i think it's four because goodness April yeah four years oh. four years almost and oh. like we have seven books under contract Wait, um eight I, 
no, seven. I'm counting in my head. You're Vicious, right. Seven, darker seven. shade yeah. gathering. Wow. Yeah, seriously. Wait, wait, hey, corporate over there trying to shake her down for another right? book. Jeez. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's seven because I had to do the math earlier in my head today that I have 16 books under contract and seven of them are with Tor. <laughs> and, Jesus Christ. I know. All right. Um, I feel tired just thinking about it. But yeah, and, and Miriam and I, you know, we're the same age. We are basically the same person. It's kind of it's revealed true. to us on a daily basis that we are almost exactly the same person. <laughs> we're basically literally two sides of the same coin because our only separateness. Well, we have we have two things that we are different in. Um, well, um, I'm a Slytherin and you're a Ravenclaw. I Griffin Claw, technically, thank you very much. But that was going to be the first one. The second <laughs> one is that I sometimes wear other colors besides black. And the third one is is that I am allergic to peanuts, and V is obsessed with peanut butter. Yeah, those really those are are kind of our only differences. You're a little bit better at being in public than I am. So let's talk about that being in public thing for just a second, because some authors, due due to lack of success, don't have to be in the public very much. But as you become more successful, like oh, yeah. this whole like being a public thing becomes more of a thing. So I don't actually have as much issue being in public when it comes to interacting directly with readers. But you kind of mentioned earlier, I did come from the YA scene from young adult. And so I still feel a lot of, I think, uh, self-consciousness sometimes when I'm in the adult genre community. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing more conventions and conferences is to get more comfortable. But, you know, it's tricky. I'm young, I'm female, and I'm in adult genre. <laughs> and so, and I haven't spent nearly as much time in that community as I have in YA and as if I had really in any community. I've been doing this for um, about six and a half years. And so I think a lot of it is one that I just don't really like people. But the other part <laughs> is that I just am, I'm just... I get very, very self-conscious. So at least I think when I'm interacting with readers, um, I kind of know where I stand. And when I'm interacting with other writers, I get very intimidated. I, I feel like that's going back to part of it is like having people that you can trust around you or people you can confide in. Um, I mean, it's really awesome. Um, I feel like V and I at a conference doesn't always get to happen. And when it does, it's fantastic. Um, and we're both, uh, like V pointed out, I'm a little bit more extroverted than she is. Um, but I like to go hide out. And so <laughs> I told her at one point at Confusion that I was going to go hide out for like two hours. And she was like, oh, me too. Should we just be silent in the room together? And I was <laughs> That's when we watched anime. That was night That's one. We weren't um, at all. <laughs> but I do think yeah, it's a it's a matter of like inside outside culture. And I definitely think as with any community, like finding your safe space. And so I'm really, really lucky. I tend to like love any time that Miriam comes to a conference with me and or makes me go to that conference with her <laughs> because I can count on her to actually like make sure that I socialize for an allotted period of time before I disappear back into like a cave somewhere and put on my PJs. <laughs> Uh, so as you've transitioned, so like there's that part of it too, but like, what about from like, just, uh, um, like interacting with readers difference? Like how has it been different going from YA to? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting in a lot of ways. Yeah. A lot of YA readers are adults, but there's a much different culture of fandom in adult versus YA. And I feel like the YA fandom is more extroverted in, in its fandom. They, they tend to turn out more in person. They tend to be, um, I'm trying to think of like just incredibly effusive in their affection. And it's something that's obviously very easy to feed on. And it's been an adjustment because I think I have, I'm so lucky to have the fan base that I do in adult and, and I'm, I'm just really grateful for it. They're like stealth fans. Like some of them, <laughs> the ones that are like the loudest and the most excitable have come, have followed me over from YA. And then I have this entire like, strata of fans in adult that just don't say anything and that's normal except it's not normal where I come from where fans like want to talk to you all the time and I think being on the internet as much as I am encourages that but there's this whole substrata of fans that never say a word to me it's very weird <laughs> <laughs> and you know from like the adult I acquire um adult and young adult for Torchine, but to this point have primarily been acquiring adult. And so I'm like, 
oh no, like people are buying your books and reading your books. It's just like a totally different, like I grew up a super lonely nerd who had like friends, but none of them were nerdy friends. So like I read all my books in secret and definitely did not have any sort of like fandom outreach or anything like that because I wasn't aware that there were like cool places you could go to where everyone else likes the things you do. Um, so I feel like one of the things that happens at conventions is these like, oh my God, no one's going to want to talk to me. I'm like, except they will. You'll yeah, I was going to say the conventions seem to be the exception to that. The conventions are like this um, codified an atmosphere where it's all right to be a fan but sure. it's it's a very different to see that as compared to just a bookstore event per se we just did a bookstore event in um in michigan in conjunction with confusion and the turnout there was primarily the ya readers although like, there was a pretty started. solid across pretty the board turnout. that was a great yeah. that was a great reading and there's so many fun authors so oh it yeah it was like, like a round robin kind of thing but it was really interesting to see the kind of, I mean, not to stereotype, but you could look at the audience and there was like a good portion of them that I recognized from the YA community and from really just that passionate online interaction. That's one of the things that's actually really exciting for me about you coming over from YA and breaking you out into the adult marketplace. Um, because when I was like more YA reading age, um, although as Justin points out, that's a huge amount of adult readership now, but there wasn't, there was kid lit, there was children's literature, and we were starting to get a little YA, but yeah. when I read fantasy, I really read a lot of adult fantasy. I was reading across the board. I once horrified a entire meeting of sales and marketing people when talking about the new Cushiel's dark covers by telling them that I read it in middle school. And <laughs> I assumed that was totally normal. And they were all like, this is not. <laughs> well, but you know, it's really interesting though, like having come from YA to adult, it's been one of the greatest privileges and excitements of what I do is that I get a lot of readers who have like, I, I grew up reading a lot, but I didn't read a lot of adult fantasy. And I think one of the reasons was I was, I was very intimidated by it. You know, I was a very solid reader, but it's mm -hmm. still, you look at um, a lot of the tomes and the classic adult fantasy works, and it, there's like a sense of exclusivity to it. Like, I was very turned off by how it felt like the, it was a test. Like, there was an aspect to me of, fa of classic fantasy when I was a teen that felt like it was testing your resolve as to whether you deserve to be a fan of it. Yes. And so when I set out to write adult fantasy, especially coming from YA, I really, really wanted to write something that was accessible, that could really bridge my readers forward and still appeal to obviously the existing fantasy market, but also to that new generation that's coming up and, and continuing to read YA, but also wanting to find another foothold. And I didn't want, I wanted to write what I consider a user-friendly fantasy, which I don't think is a simplifying term. It just means I, I just wanted it to feel welcoming. And I think that's one of the most, like one of the best reinforcements I've had is to hear from readers that they find the Darker Shade series to just be a welcoming fantasy transition. And then they're going from there and they're picking up Sanderson and they're picking up Rothfuss and Lynch. And that's really, really exciting to get to be for them um, a cog in that wheel. That's exactly how I like to think about it because I'm, I'm so intensely passionate about, you know, uh, books and literature in general and obviously being a tour editor specifically about speculative fiction. And I think you're really right about the kind of challenge of some of, especially a lot of the fantasy that you might cr come across um, yeah. when you're a reader who has all the time to read, you know, 1800 page books. When you're, when I was in high school, I used to read like, you know, like 12 books a week or something like that. And I feel like one of the really exciting things watching your career progress is how I feel like we're kind of sinking a readership yeah. so we can branch all these new readers out and so we'll always have generations and generations and generations of fantasy readers for one million years to come and, and the idea of that just makes me like so happy well it's been so exciting and not like it's not that I consider myself like this vital piece it's just been really really exciting to 
have a lot of my established YA readers pick up my series and then come see me at an event and say, you know, I'm so happy I found you. And now look at this other stack of books. And of course, there are authors that are, you know, way more established than me or way more famous. But they, some of the readers might not have necessarily felt comfortable just waiting straight in. And so it's an incredible honor. And it's a really wonderful challenge to find a way to bridge both the strengths of adult genre and the strengths of YA and combine them into something that people can kind of use to introduce them to, you know, introduce our next generation of fantasy readers. It's interesting. As I read A Darker Shade of Magic, I, it never occurred to me to compare you and Sanderson, but after you mentioned his name, but like it's that, that same sense of accessibility that I think Brandon actually does really well, um, even as he's far more bloated, but very accessible. I actually read Sanderson for the very first time about a year and a half ago. And so I had read, I had written A Darker Shade of Magic and I was writing A Gathering of Shadows and I was asking myself a lot of questions about character um, because A Darker uh, Gathering of Shadows is the second book and it's very character driven. And I was reading um, Mistborn and then I read, I obviously read Mistborn and then I read Through Well of Ascension and then I switched over to The Way of Kings and Way of Kings is like a thousand mm -hmm. pages almost. And I remember finishing the way of kings and I put it down and I said to myself you know because I think it's really important for writers to read as writers and try and break down when things are working and what's not working and for me I thought I could have read another thousand pages because of the characters so what you know what was it that that held to me and the plot was fun but for me what what kept me there through 800, 1,000 pages was that I cared intensely about the people. And so when I was working on Gathering of Shadows, I gave myself a little bit of that leave to dig deeper into the characters because I thought if people are going to stick with me, like you might pick up Darker Shade of Magic for the plot, but if you're with me at Gathering of Shadows, you've come back for the characters. And so I just wanted to make sure that I was being incredibly loyal to them and writing a book that I felt like would sink its teeth deeper into the reader in terms of that emotional investment in the people in the book. Because I believe at the end of the day that plot is fine and fun and great. But when we put the book down, it's the characters we're left caring about or not caring about. I mean, I think it's how real life works, too. I mean, books books are in a lot of ways a microcosm mm -hmm. of of reality, regardless of if you can't, you know use your blood to walk through parallel universes. <laughs> um, but it, it nice? is, it's, it's the people, you know, that drive you because of intense dislike, the people that drive you because of love, that's what sticks with you in your everyday. And so that's what needs to stick with you when you're taking a break from your everyday too. Exactly. Because it's not like you just like turn off your brain when you read it. Even if you're an escapist reader, you're not turning off your brain, you're just relocating. Well, it's one of the reasons I say that escapism applies just as much to realistic fiction as it does to fantasy. We don't oh, escape totally. just to a world. We escape to somebody else's life in that world. And, and somebody so, else's emotions. Yeah, exactly. We put on a different mantle. And so I think it's so important. And one of the things that like, I really pride myself on is my characters. You know, I, I, I struggle with plot and pacing as much as any fantasy author sometimes it's something that we work on intensely when you're doing or second good editors for. <laughs> That's what I mean. when I say we I mean I mean Miriam and I work on intensely but when you're doing second world fantasy obviously there is world building and stuff but at the end of the day if I can get people to really invest in Kel and Lila and Rye then I can I can have them follow me through whatever I put those characters through Actually, I really, I really, really do. I'm crazy about this series, obviously. Um, I bought more books in it. Um, but with the first book that Victoria uh, sent me was called, uh, it was always called Vicious, actually. It was yeah. always called Vicious. Yeah. I know. If I knew then what I knew I now. know. I'm sorry. We know now that nobody can spell the word vicious, apparently, because <laughs> a number of people are like, I love viscous. It was Oh, amazing. my God. Irene, bless her. Every She let me yell at her every time she made the mistake on internal tour.com things. I was like, no. But yes, Vicious was the first book that we did together. Yes. And I will say that the first phone conversation we had editorially there is a character in Vicious named Serena who I who V handles so perfectly from the get-go and, and through the revision process and especially in the final um, what we came through with. But I love that character so much and she's 
actually, if you go back and count the pages, she has like the least pages of any of the integral book protagonists. Mm -hmm. um, and she has the least viewpoints. But for someone who's or ephemeral, however you say that on the page, yeah. she's like extraordinarily powerful as like a resonant echoing character um, when you put down the book. And I just, I think that's a really, there's a lot of things that you can do as a writer to learn your craft and to perfect your craft. But that's one of those things that's so hard to do. And I've always been really impressed with V's ability to do that. Oh, thank you. Well, and it was really interesting because Rye became kind of a similar echo. For oh yeah. In, in Darker Shade of Magic, Kel, who's one of the two main characters, has a brother named Rye. He's a prince. And he probably has the least on-page time of any of the kind of primary and secondary characters. And he's everybody's favorite. <laughs> and so he does, he is a point of view character in book two, but he is like this, this very tangential character in book one. And I'm always like, have to call attention to people when they're like, Oh, and he was my absolute favorite. And I was like, you know, he's in like three chapters. <laughs> and they're like, no way. He's, he's really everybody's favorite. Yeah. Except I also, so he is my first, um, LGBT main character. And I'm, and so he, um, he's planted the seeds of it are in book one and he really gets to flourish in book two. And so it was really important to me to have him. And so I think people who are looking to find, you know, their, their representation, who are looking to find someone that they're like, thank you for at least having this. It's nice to have Rye seeded into book one. And I love to get to tell people that he's a main part of book two. I noticed the line, I think it's in the first chapter or the second chapter where you actually mention um, that maybe, boys are coming in and out of his room, right? But, like, I don't think you mention it again at all in the first book. No. No. And, I mean, and the, so this is a really interesting thing. Like, one of the big thematic things that starts to come up over the course of the series is the role of sexuality versus power. And that this is, um, you know, obviously, Grey London, not obviously people that haven't read it, but Grey London, <laughs> which is our fundamental London, is circa 1819, and that's Lila Bard's London. Um, so this is a historical in that sense, but Red London, which is kind of the primary location of the series, is a, a fantastical alternate universe. And it's one in which gender and sexuality play different and in many ways lesser roles than things like magic. How Whether or not a person has magic is far, far more important than who they're taking to bed or who they might sway for. And so, um, you know, a lot of point, people have pointed out that Lila is herself a rather ambiguous character in terms of her sexuality and what that is. And, and it was less that I was trying to hit specific notes and more that it's very important to me that the characters in this world, both the insiders and the outsiders, sexuality is not their modus operandi like it's just not the prime importance um for anybody in this Even series for lila power no lila would totally hook up with like half of the women in gathering of shadows the like super strong magicians because it's just she is it's attracted power. to power but in a darker shade of magic interestingly is one of the things i observe is there really is no romantic subplot which is interesting i know i love it. <laughs> Wait, wait, I secretly ship people, obviously. Actually, I ship basically, I do this all the time with these books. I ship basically everyone except the one ship I want, the ship <laughs> of which I will not speak, which some of these fans delightfully, um, that, I mean, they I like that people connect with characters so much that they see things. Um, well, <laughs> so what's very interesting is, um, so I am, people who follow me online at all know that I have very, very mixed feelings about romance in books in that I don't mind it, but I don't ever believe that romance should be the plot. I think that it's um, um, a nice side effect of other things, but my books tend to involve ticking clocks or like worlds threatening to end or lives threatening to end. And so it would feel really disingenuous to have people being like, BRB, like, let me Big get ups. it on over here. Like, because it don't bother that we have like 13 hours till the world ends. So I, I tend to, I really, really am in what we call insta-love resistant. But I also just think that priorities are important. <laughs> and Kel and Lila have very different priorities in book one. First of all, they're just meeting. 
um, they meet on like page 130 <laughs> and they don't like Lila has her own goals and Kel has his own goals and it's not really about their sexual tension. It is about their tension as characters. It's really ironic that in Gathering of Shadows I counted and I think there are actually more kissing scenes than killing scenes. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel like for a while that was actually, uh, I love it. V was sending me uh, running updates while she was writing and revising of like oh, the tally um, and when it switched from like, yeah, the kiss kill tally. Um, and it's, you know, the kiss kill tally, I think it's It's almost even. It's, it, I, I think it's almost even now. And, and, you know, I don't have, V and I are on the same page frequently, um, but not so often as to make our collaborative efforts not without, you know, like pushback. And I think of it a little bit differently. I agree with um, V that the tension is really like paramount to driving the action of the plot. But for me, I'm less resistant to the idea of central romances in narrative. I think for me, it's just about relationships. So it doesn't necessarily mean romance, but it doesn't bother me if it is. Like, I feel like almost more than plots ticking and everything going doom. Um, I feel like the relationship of the characters to themselves, to other people, is always what will compel me to keep going. Well, and the the other factor, there are two other factors there, which is, one, I really like slow burn. <laughs> like, oh, I, I am a really burn. big fan uh-huh. of, like, making people wait for it. Um, but the other thing is, the timeline of book one is, like, three days, and the timeline of book two is, like, four <laughs> weeks. So I think, you know, there's there's the difference, too, of, like, anything that I was able to make between characters in book one would have felt, to me, disingenuous because we're just meeting them all and they're just meeting each other. Let's so it's nice to book- Huh? No, you love torturing people. You love, oh, no, I love torturing, you love torturing your readers. You're like, oh, I just like to make the tension burn and wait yeah. for it. No, you just love torture. I mean, it is really, like, really sad. But, but I also like the other, the other luxury of Gathering of Shadows, which has a different plot and a different pace structure, is that I got to actually really explore those relationships, both the characters struggling with themselves in the wake of book one and the characters struggling in relation to each other. And when I say struggling, I mean, you know, obviously like emotional and sexually. (laughs) Is it a longer book? It's actually not as long as it was. So book one is 400 pages and book two is 520. But then Miriam made me cut like 50 pages from the end. Okay, okay, okay. Can I just can I just interject for like two seconds and say that A, uh, we are yeah, V's right, it was a whole third because I think a darker shade of magic was almost a hundred K dead on. Yeah. Um, but just for like relative fact checking, when Victoria and I signed our first contract, she sent she had sent me Vicious, which was at the time I think like it was seventy five thousand, seventy thousand. It was very short. And in the contract, uh, you have to specify for the tour contract how many, you know, like ballpark your word count of deliverable. And uh, I told her, I uh, got a call from her agent and was like, listen, you put 90000 in there. Was that a typo? And I was like, oh, no, that's what the book needs. It needs to be like 90 or 95,000 words. We're like missing a couple things. We'll do it during editing. No worries. I lost. Was like, I was yeah. like, oh my God, I can't believe she thinks I'm going to add 25,000 words to this manuscript. And it came in at 95? It, it came in at, I think, like <laughs> 94,500 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, so. it was... It was pretty, but so I have since eaten my words because I started out as a very short writer. My first book was only like uh, the final word count on the Near Witch, which I was like 23. Three. So at that point, I was still like learning how to write a book. So I was kind of daunted by length. Um, it was 280 pages and each book subsequently has gotten longer. So I think I went from 280 pages to 325 to 350 to 380 to 400 to 520. And now the <laughs> ongoing joke is just like, how long is Adsom 3 going to be? Like, how long is this conclusion going to be? 
Watch out, Sanderson. I know. Well, I asked Miriam the other day. I was like, "How many pages am I technically allowed to make it before the pop, like before the production team cuts me off? Because I, before I the cost goes up, numbers. I was like, <laughs> "Well, we've done this many." Yeah. You know, just like to be right. I love being right, man. I know you're right. Well, I'm. I keep joking that this third book is going to come in at like 250 pages, and Miriam's not going to know what to do. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, I guess. Okay. I don't think that's going to happen, though. So let's talk about just world building for a second, because I thought you did some fun things in the series, world building wise, that there's like lots of, like for lack of a better term, like there's lots of Chekhov's guns, like sitting on mantelpieces. <laughs> I mean, like Black London, which is something of a plot point in the first book, is just like sitting there, yeah. like this big looming box that you can unopen at some point. Um, I'm excited to open it. <laughs> I should spoiler. I open it in book two, <laughs> well, but also like, and then also like Red London. That you have an entire world. Yeah, so that's like one of the things that we don't really get to like hint at in the beginning is so we call these these Londons, Gray London, Red London, White London, Black London, but each is a parallel world. It's not a parallel city. It's not like you hit the end of London and it just goes blank. So each one of these capitals is really the the central point of a magical city within a magical world. And so in Gathering of Shadows, we really get to explore the um, Red London is located in Arns. Arns is one of three major, what we would consider European empires, along with Vesk and Pharaoh. And the, at the crux of Gathering of Shadows, we have a magical tournament, um, kind of like a triwizard tournament between, <laughs> uh, the top magicians of Pharaoh, Vesk, and Arns. And so we, f I finally get to explore at least the tip of the iceberg of each of these worlds a little bit. I, obviously, there, Miriam and I talk a lot about their there's so much more I want to explore. So and so a lot of what we're trying to figure out is, you know, how right. much can I reasonably explore about these worlds while still focusing on um, this set of characters and this place and this time and this arc and make sure that I don't leave people feeling like I haven't done my due diligence in terms of my world building, but also I don't, I don't want to bloat, as you said, of Sanderson's, uh, you know, books every now and then. I don't want to indulge myself to the point where I'm, getting off course. I mean, part of this is, uh, I mean, at least from my point of view too, V and I, one of the really, one of my favorite parts of this um, series universe that we're working with is that uh, when V and I were talking about it originally, we were talking about how to make the Londons, like what reason they would connect and how it relates back to the mythology and how that relates to like the series arc and you know all these things that we uh, guests can't spoil yet but yeah. uh, <laughs> um, but one of the cool things that we realized is that if you think about it it's like layers of onion skin and it just like happens to be the point where it touches like where your knife cuts but like there's the whole other part of that onion you know there's like each layer is not just like one small slice which is yeah. what we've seen so far. It's like a whole skin. Well, and so in the magical world system that we've created, there are these what are called sources of magic running through the world. And it just happens that the Thames happens to be one of the world's greatest sources of magic, this kind of vein in the pulse of the world. And so regardless of which London you're in, these parallel universes are geographically identical. And so they all have this river running through them, whether it's called the Thames or the Isle or the Silts. Um, we don't find out the name yet of Black London's river, but they all have this beating vein running through it. And so the, the assumption is, of course, that there are other places in the world, other sources in the world. And you could set a story around them. There are pinpoints. You know, this is the analogy that I use in the books is that these are these worlds are like pieces of paper in a book, side by side by side. These sources, um, these kind of connecting points are as though you'd put a pin through that point in the paper. And so that's why I focused on alternate versions of London. Plus, I kind of wanted to play. London is a very, very classic site for fantasy novels to house themselves. And so I wanted to play with the fact that you've got four Londons. Three of them are entirely fantastical. And only the real, quote unquote, real London is based on a Western London, like English model. The others um, take from 
from Eastern Europe, from Scandinavian, from, from Prussian, like they have a lot of different model systems. And so what it might seem like on the surface is a kind of Western centric story isn't nearly as, as such. And one of the cool things is that we start out kind of with, I mean, that's one of the other things. It's like, uh, if you read Vicious, um, or if you read Vicious, you're, you might notice that the city it's mostly set in, Merritt, is kind of like a pseudo-Gotham. It's really in conversation with a lot of the comic or superhero narrative tropes of mm -hmm. place. And I think one of the things V manages to do in this is kind of juxtapose the idea of, like, under London, which, like she said, is a hugely classic fantasy idea, yeah. with it not turning out to be under at all, but like past. I think what really needs to happen, obviously, is a future series set in New York around Alexander Hamilton. Oh my God! Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, Alexandra. Oh, don't even, don't even tempt me. We'll just make a fake Angelica, and her name will be Alexandra, and it will be amazing. And. I have a lot of ideas. Problem, though. This is the problem. I actually like, am, I am a, a buff of many things, but like history is not always my jam. And so like you notice, like I have written a, a historical <laughs> second world fiction novel wherein I get the hell out of real London like as quickly as possible. Gotta go. I'm like, uh, all right, now I like, and I did, I did do my due diligence. I was in London. I did my, I walked the exact paths, my characters walk. I plotted everything out to make sure that it worked. And then got the hell out of Dodge. I was like, I want to get to my fantasy fictional place now. Well, I also saw somebody asking you a question on Twitter, which was like, now what kind of gun did she oh, have? And, and I love this fucking question because people are always trying to catch me in it. My father was one of the first people who read the book and was like, "Hun, I don't, I don't think you've done your proper research about this gun here. And I like specifically <laughs> did. It is like, it's not, it, it is a flintlock revolver. It's a collier, which was originally patented in Boston, it's not manufactured that heavily until about a year and a half after when the book is set, but it was a prized possession among the London elite in 1819 and 1820. And Lila makes a habit in the book, especially very early on, of pickpocketing extremely wealthy people. She tells us that there's really nothing good to steal from the poor. And so she has come into possession of this Collier flintlock revolver, rare as it is, it is still feasible that she has come into it yeah, without breaking a law of this world's his history. I feel like you wrote me this exact email in I did. I copied and pasted you. it. <laughs> <laughs> I did because my dad was like, my dad was like a gun enthusiast. And he's like, I don't think you've done your, your research. And I was like, oh, I'm about to school you. I am well, about I to school you. I just wrote you like a very gentle email that was like, hey, just one of those things to watch in revision. We need to fact check that this is a thing. And you were like, wait. Don't fuck with people's guns, man. That's like one thing. There's only one element, and I can't say what it is because it's a spoiler. There's only one element in the book that is actually historically questionable. And yeah. so it's the only element I ask people to slide on, and no one has actually noticed it and questioned me on it yet. I am so delighted by that. And I'm I'm like gleeful just in like a kind of like gotcha kind of way more than anything else. Just because I'm it like, would have actually been really hard. Like it's something right. that had to be, but it is a little historically questionable. <laughs> I, but yep. no one has asked on it yet. Everyone asks about the gun, and I'm so excited because I have an answer for the gun. <laughs> <laughs> We no, unfortunately, unfortunately one. for Lila, the minute she gets to Red London and runs out of bullets, that poor, poor gun is just like oh, totally God. null and void. I will say it's one thing people get bent out of shape about is firearms. I they get really bent out of shape, and I at this point I can't imagine how like some author side so manuscript I'm editing right now, I I like had to go through and change the word clip to magazine, like because that's a faux pas. And I'm like at this at this point. If you're a writer, how are you still making that mistake? I do take research pretty seriously. I'm working on, um, or I'm just starting. So I, I, I tend to actually start uh, doing the research and planning for a book about a year to two years out. And so I am working on one of future project for Miriam, in which I am <gasps> researching really heavily. I, I have taken a oh lot of God, firearm so lessons, and I've taken combat lessons and all kinds of things, understanding like with with ex-military um, to make sure I, I understand all of my terminology and so that I don't make those mistakes. 
I feel like I should do this. Like I've I've Eight. shot some guns. I grew up kind of in an area where it was country-ish, and I knew a lot of people who did that. Um, but I you feel should do like, it too, so you can edit it. Well, I was gonna say I feel like I've been really wanting to do like hand-to-hand combat. We should do a spy course together. Oh I my think, god! I think we should do a spy course together. Actually, I went to this amazing conference, a conference that I love. Um, called Sirens. Um, it takes place in October. Um, it's been in Portland and it's been in Denver and it's a really, really amazing um, kind of feminist mythology weekend of just like really interesting people who just love fantasy books and want to talk about them. And it's just like a bunch of badass women being awesome. And um, one of the women who's just, um, she's, you know, a reader and a fan and an attendee. And this year she also taught a course on lock picking. And I was like, gotta go, I think I was gonna <laughs> go to the gym or like go back to my room and do like editing or read submissions. And I was like, no, I have wanted yeah. to learn how to pick a lock since I was like five or six. <laughs> and I, this is totally something that will come up in one of the fantasy books I edit or a science, fi- I like, I don't it know. It will come up in ours. Weren't there like Twitter questions? Oh, there were. I totally forgot. There were like a dozen Twitter yeah, questions. Yeah, let's look at Twitter questions. There were Twitter. Who gave us Twitter questions? People this is like real A thing. lot of people. Yeah. Hold on. I don't fake. Oh, Miriam, I'm kind of popular on the internet. God. Oh my God. Okay. All right. From at Silvabri, I think, uh, okay. who plans to read um, Ad Sam soon. Oh, nice. Oh, I hope we but, didn't spoil you too much. But Sorry. they want to know, <laughs> what makes your works unique from other fantasy writers in your own words? They actually specify in your own words. Ooh. My name is on the cover. So, therefore... <laughs> no, okay. Um, like I say, I think we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think that... I mean, I like to think that there's a degree of accessibility. Plus, I um, I'm really into badass women with knives. Yeah, <laughs> like, one of my favorite I am like parts. super into giving weapons to all of my characters, but specifically my women, and I like to give them knives and guns. Um, no, I don't. I, I don't, Mary. Maybe you should answer that one since you're the editor. I mean, my answers are just going to sound narcissistic. Oh, but mine's going to be like sappy and then people will know I have like oh everyone that you have feelings I'm so sorry for the sake of my narcissism expose your feelings to the internet (laughs) I guess only for you um I would say I mean this is like a tough question because there's like so many answers um I think that you're a really, really, really savvy character person, as we talked about a little before in this podcast. Um, You just have, like, a dab hand um, at creating, like, whole cloth characters. But I also am always really, really impressed with your, like, tonal aptitude. Like, I've read almost every single one of your books, um... And you have a different voice in every single one. And yet they are all somehow obviously Victoria Schwab thumbprint imprint books. Um, And I think that level of control is really unusual um, in any writer. And not to mention someone who's, you know, um, not just younger because I don't necessarily think age matters always, but newer. I mean, you've written like... 12 books if you count ones in the trunks you know um and some writers write like you know 35 books before they have that level of i want uh, for the record i have one trunk book really you only have one i only have one i wrote my first book when i got to college i was 19 and i wanted to see if i could write something longer than a five-page short story and so i sat down and wrote my very first ever book and it got me an agent but thank god it didn't sell (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it was not good it was like Alice in Wonderland on even more crack <laughs> like, but I just want like for the record I'm very proud of my one trunk statistic oh yeah alright so from a mysterious tweeter at Nava W asks what nicknames are acceptable to use for you <laughs> <laughs> hey <laughs> not 
not Vicky. <laughs> no. I, there are, no offense to the Vickies out there. I know there are some wonderful Vickies. I, um, I, my full name is Victoria Elizabeth. People can call me Victoria or V. Um, v is for people who are too lazy to use the other three syllables. Yeah, most people on the internet. No, I mean, I, a lot of people do call me V. I was a jock for a really long time, and so I'm no stranger to nicknames in sports. Um, but growing up, my nickname was was Tori, the oh, re- but it was spelled T-A-U-R-I because um, it is the term for a cosmic event. Oh and God. I was into astrophysics. That's actually what I went to school for originally. <laughs> I did. I, I switched out of that pretty fast. But I was obsessed with astronomy and astrophysics. And so that Tori was like my favorite nickname. But now I just go by Victoria. You were an ace nerd before you were even writing genre. Oh, stellar. Uh, this is a good one from Mike Underwood. Uh, at Mike R. Underwood. Uh, he says, what bizarre habit will Victoria be pursuing thanks to her sweet TV deal and needing to fit in with Hollywood? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's hard. You know, I feel like it should be some kind of like extreme juice cleanse. But really, it's it's probably not. I would prefer like the designer cupcake habit, like whatever, like the new tiny, like tasty thing is. I would like to eat that. <laughs> and the giant boots. Oh, yeah. So the one, so actually the one thing is like, I've told myself if the darker shade, uh, show actually gets made, like is a thing that I can see with my eyes, then I'm going to buy myself like an epic reversible Burberry coat. Oh, right. There's a Burberry coat that is black on one side and red on the other. And I cannot, one, I cannot afford it. And the other, I just cannot handle how much I want it. So I've told myself that if the pilot actually gets filmed and it's a thing I can watch, then I'm going to let myself get that. I think if, if you hit, maybe like if you hit list too, maybe. Okay, yeah. I'm going to like, I will also say that like if any member of the Darker Shade family hits a list, I will probably also go buy that coat. <laughs> Wait, what was I going to do if we hit the list? I feel like I was, I was going to get that ring and then Justin bought it for me. My Justin bought it for me for Justin, uh, Christmas. Um, you should obviously go see Hamilton. <laughs> Oh, listen, I'm doing that already. I, <laughs> You're going to have to pick a wonderful shoes. pair of shoes or a coat because this is the book of magical coats. I feel like I was thinking about a coat and then I was also thinking about a tattoo, but maybe I'll just go with a coat considering that I couldn't even sit still to get my ears pierced. I definitely, um, I have like a very strict policy of not getting my books tattooed on myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it wouldn't be my book. It'd be no, your. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, so like I just got a commemorative tattoo to um, to commemorate surviving grad school and writing three books all in one year. And to, if, if like, to be honest, I also spent part of that time like, you know, getting a television deal and t- working on a pilot. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was commemorating a lot of things. So I think something really big would have to happen for me to get a tattoo. But honestly, if we could just make Gathering of Shadows hit the New York Times list just so I can have that Burberry coat. like <laughs> I am like super not below wearing a sandwich board on the street that just has my book cover on it. <laughs> like, Listen, telling I people will join you. I will learn how to twirl a sign. Right? Yeah. I just I have been coveting that coat forever. There are a lot of things that I feel like I could convince myself it was okay to buy, which is hilarious because, as we all know, publishing is a lucrative job. Oh, totally. (laughs) And as an editor, you definitely somehow get a cut of whatever happens to your books. That is a lie, kids. That is such a lie. And and in the most affordable city. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, my apartment is a palace. Yeah. But it's yeah. adorable. Oh, thanks. So I do. It's very cutely decorated, I will say. It's very, very cute and cozy. Yeah. All right. So last question from at McFly Cahill 90, also known as Martin Ooh. Cahill. You jump genres slash mediums so well and so frequently. Is this a deliberate choice or just where your brain takes you? Um. It's it's a little of column E, a little of column A, a little of column B. I definitely made a conscious effort to diversify because I believe if I'm going to achieve world domination, I need to really rope them young and then keep them. So yep. I like think that the more shelves in a bookstore that my books can be on, the more chance I have of winning minions. 
And Remember, then, she's a Slytherin. Yeah, oh, I'm like the <laughs> most Slytherin Slytherin out there. But at the same time, I don't ever, I, I set out to do that initially and to create these multiple avenues where my books could fit. And then the more that I write, the more freedom that gives me because it allows me to sit down, explore a concept or idea, and then ask myself, you know, where do I think this would fit on a shelf? What age bracket is it for? So I don't sit down and say, okay, I need to write another children's book or I need to write another adult book. I sit down with the idea first and then I have the freedom of seeing where I would like that story to go and the luxury to an extent of knowing that I, I do have certain avenues open. So part of it is just that I get different story ideas. They appeal to me. I could not imagine only writing in one genre, even a genre as flexible as science fiction and fantasy the way it is these days. I just, while the only really connective thread between all of my books is a supernatural element, I cannot conceive of myself writing a book that had no fantastical component to it just because as a reader, that's my brand of escapism. I mean, so also as a writer, death. I love that. Huh? Death. And death. Death is like the primary theme for me. Um, death and <laughs> the line between the living and the dead and the line between mortal and immortal. Um, those are, I love boundaries. The, the key I got to commemorate that year was a key. I mean, the tattoo I got to commemorate that year was a key because I love writing about doorways and thresholds and things like that. But honestly, there was definitely a cognitive component to it. I chose to branch out and write in multiple arenas um, but the choice, the decision to persist in that is because I enjoy it. I have to say I got to write a book for the Spirit Animal series at Scholastic, which the age on that is like 8 to 12, <laughs> 12 boys, and it was such a, like it was all just like monsters and like action and like there's like a scene where it's like a giant spider that turns out it's like a thousand spiders all looking through the wall uh, like, now i'm definitely never reading that book don't read, don't read that but i'm just saying it just is fun plus you know the the reason i actually the first time i wrote a book for children like not for below ya for just um middle school kids i wanted a challenge Every time I start to feel comfortable in a genre and what I'm writing, my initial impulse is to find find something different to push myself because I want to get better. I want to grow. I don't ever want to be one of those authors that just repeats the same formula over and over again, even if it becomes successful. It just doesn't intrigue me because I'm my first reader. And I have to be having fun as the reader of my own work. In order to do that, I have to push myself to do something new. We have we've gone for a while here, and I've got some editing work to do. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to take out some of the uh, some of the sidebars. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just just That's a few. I just, just want few. you to know that this is exactly uh, when we turned in the first draft of a gathering of shadows. She wrote me a little note in the email and was like, "I know you really love banter, so let me keep all that banter, okay?" <laughs> <laughs> and you let me. I let you keep most of it. To be it. fair, the last third was mostly killing people. So much fun. Thank you so much for doing this, Justin. No, thanks for coming on. This is a lot of fun. I was sad that we did not get to have as long a conversation at Confusion as I would have liked. Oh, me too. But that's how, we'll have to that's do how, it again next year. That's right. That's how it goes. So thank you both for coming on. This has been Rocket Talk. Rocket Talk.